This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Claire Monterana, the Federal Chief Information Officer, and Raylene Young, the Executive Director of GSA's Technology Modernization Fund Program Management Office. Claire, Raylene, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. So nice to be here, Jason. Thanks for having us. We're having a bit of a wide-ranging conversation, which I'm looking forward to. First of all, we're going to start with the news that just came out in the last week or so about the Technology Modernization Fund. You know, Claire, I have to admit, I still have a hard time not saying loan, but, but we can use the word award as well. The Veterans Affairs Department and to, to move forward to uh, with login.gov. Let's just talk about that decision to, to give VA about $10.5 million to really kind of um, accelerate their move to login.gov. What about that proposal? What about this overall broader identity authentication effort? Can you tell us? I think I'm going to change the nomenclature even a little bit more and talk about investments, right? We really are investing in these programs. And what's exciting to me about VA is I spent some time over at VA several years ago, and this is a continuation of their digital modernization journey. And, you know, veterans need to access digital services across the VA, And oftentimes it's confusing and frustrating because they have multiple usernames and sign-in options and passwords. And so the investment that we're making in VA to actually modernize these services is going to help veterans have a seamless and secure access to the benefits that they earned, uh, which we're really excited about. And one of the things about that multiple usernames, passwords, that's, that's not a new problem. It's, I think it's been going on for, for years, not just at VA, but across government. Do you see this as, we'll use the dirty word pilot program for how agencies can maybe use what VA is learning and, and expand it? I know login.gov is not new. There's something like, if I correct me wrong, 30 agencies maybe using it or, or so. There's a lot of folks already using it. The critical thing to remember about identity in general is It has to be safe and secure and providing in our lives using private sector technology, we are used to simple and seamless interactions, right? I can log into Grubhub, I can do multiple things and utilize some of the technology available on my devices or have a a simple um, experience. It isn't that way in a lot of federal enterprises, right? We can't transit from agency to agency and have that same identity move with us. So part of the opportunity is in agencies that have multiple identity systems, starting there and making those seamless, safe, and secure. We know that we can then build on those lessons learned and actually start to have them help us as we transit across agencies. Raylene, let me ask you to jump in on this as well, because one of the things about the VA decision, folks could look at it and go, well, they just had that big brouhaha with ID me. But we know that these this, this goes through the process, the board, this is not a, a quick and dirty, right? This takes a while. So maybe just give me a sense more broadly about the what you're seeing around ID, identity authentication, and and how that's important from the board's perspective, from the program management office as one of those things that are uh, important to all agencies. 
Yeah. And, and I want to talk about, you know, echoing what Claire's saying around identity is just a, a fundamental part of delivering government services. So something we think a lot about is the power of shared services. So when you think about a shared service across government, you know, the first part of it is really building out that shared service, making sure that it works and can scale. So that's a great example of login.gov, which actually, you know, is used by over 40 million users across a number, a few dozen federal agencies. So there is that portion of time that's about investing in the shared service. And then there's that other side of the agency adoption of a shared service. And that's a great example of what the VA is doing. So you kind of have the two sides of the coin and together through developing the shared service and then agencies adopting the shared service, that's when you really get that government-wide benefit. And you can kind of have that build once and use many sort of leverage that you get out of every um, taxpayer dollar that goes into both sides. There's plenty of examples of shared services. Uh, there's, a, in fact, a, a big conference coming up uh, uh, later this week around shared services. But I think these one-offs, if you will, not the big bang theories, but these one-offs really seem to be what the TMF board and others are really uh, looking at. Uh, Claire, maybe offer a little bit about what stood out to you about the VA proposal. I know you've gotten hundreds of proposals. What about this was so attractive to the board? I think the most critical thing to me about this was the agencies capability development internally, right? They were ready to do this work. They have been working for multiple years on this. And with each of these TMF investments, the agency's learnings are then turned into playbooks that we can scale across government. So it's a really unique superpower of the TMF. It serves as a catalyst to ensure that other agencies don't have to begin with a blank sheet of paper, that they can you know, learn from these um, opportunities and really, again, we can scale this across government. I went to the TMF website recently, and uh, I, I love the fact that, and Raylene, this is probably more for you than Clara, but the, I love the fact that there's so much data on that website and, and you, you continue, you all continually update it. It's really helpful for folks like me who, who pay attention to this. I saw a couple of the programs were closed out, which a couple of the projects were closed out. Did playbooks come from that or are they in the midst of being developed? Maybe talk more broadly about what we're seeing from the TMF and, and specifically those initial uh, uh, loans, awards that, that seem to really make a big difference for places like the agriculture department or maybe uh, the labor department. Just to give a little bit of color on the TMF in general, I, I do want to say that TMF has really evolved considerably over the past year. So prior to uh, last year, you know, the TMF overall looked at a few dozen proposals and made 11 investments in about three and a half years. But in the last several months alone, the TMF has received over 130 proposals from 60 agencies and components, totaling over $2.5 billion in demand. So I just want to share that, you know, this has represented a tremendous increase in scale and opportunity for the TMF. So, you know, I'm glad that you kind of can see all the work that we try to publish on our website, but it's really showing that I think in many ways, we are continuing to learn from all of our active investments and have really provided a lot of hands-on technical analysis and support to a much larger base of agencies than we ever have before. But to talk a little bit about you know, the impact of our projects, I would say we're seeing some really great examples of impact from some of our even our earlier your earliest TMF investments, let alone the ones that have just gotten started. So a great example is you know, one investment in uh, the USDA helped digitize the inspection process and processing errors and data collection for the USDA specialty crops 
inspection division, which actually certifies food products for public school lunches. Um, and that helps, you know, with uh, helps provide public school lunches more expeditiously. Um, another great example is an investment in the Department of Labor for visa processing requests for labor certification. So that's a great example where it actually benefited multiple agencies such as USCIS and the State Department, um, resulting in a, a multi-day reduction of processing time um, of applicants for each visa and, and in, in annual cost savings as well for all the agencies involved. So those are just a few great examples. Um, as I said, I think we'll continue to see a lot more exciting um, results from our newest investments as well. Beyond the fact that these obviously made impact on the agencies that, that kind of got the awards, whether it was USDA and the Labor Department, and then the kind of the, the tail of those investments helped the public more generally, are they developing those playbooks? How are they influencing maybe others who have similar challenges, right? Like uh, obviously USDA was moving to the cloud was one of their big uh, uh, initial awards under TMF. Everyone is having a similar challenge. Are they starting to kind of share some of those best practices and how are they sharing them? I can give a great example from some of our newer investments, just ones we announced last September, where we actually invested in three different agencies, all tackling different zero trust improvements. So we have the Department of Education, um, GSA and uh, OPM, all tackling zero trust initiatives locally at their agencies. But of course, there are many parallels across them at the same time. And so what, what they've been doing ever since they started their work is actually meeting regularly as a cohort across the three agencies every few weeks sharing tips, sharing guidance, and, and they're working together to produce guidance and shared learnings and tips that can then benefit all other agencies in, in the federal enterprise. Claire, maybe also offer a little bit of insights into the board's efforts. One of the things that I've heard, a little bit of frustration growing among CIOs, among Capitol Hill for kind of how long this decision process for the awards take. Can you offer some, you hear the fact that it's just taking longer than maybe most people hope, but what you're doing about it as well? When we issued the repayment guidance that came out in May and we had a June deadline for submissions, and that's Raylene just gave you the numbers. It were extraordinary, over 130 submissions. We did see that the quality of the proposals was not really where it needed to be. Being stewards of this billion dollars of American Rescue Plan money and the money that was appropriated to TMF, it's really important that we make sure that the investments have a chance of delivering impact and can be scaled across government. So how we've dealt with this, and um, again, Raylene touched on this a little bit, we kind of went from a 1.0 model that was in existence for three and a half years and did those 11 investments to a 2.0 model. And our 2.0 model puts technologists at the front end of the um, investment review process and partnering with the board. So the technologists are ensuring that these proposals are really worthy from a technical perspective of the investment, that they're going in the right strategic direction, that they're utilizing best practices, that the teams are capable of actually delivering, that they have acquisition vehicles in place, right? All of the fundamentals that are needed for an investment, not only to get up and running, but to be capable of delivering the impact for the mission or for the customers. So we've really been able to see agencies making some internal investments, like doing an MVP, doing some rapid prototyping, then coming to us and saying, we, we have these key learnings. Now we need to actually accelerate our IT modernization or you know, movement to the cloud or zero trust. 
And that makes it a lot easier for the board to make an investment decision because there's a proven model at an agency. And at that point, we are really able to make sure that the concept works, that the funding is going to be utilized and will have the greatest impact for the greatest chance of success. In many ways, what you described, however, is very similar to 1.0, right? You were making sure that folks had the CIO, the CFO acquisition all lined up. You would make sure that this was not a brand new startup. This was something used to accelerate. So would you say the biggest difference in the 2.0 model beyond the numbers is is what then? The the fact that some agencies are coming with that rapid prototype or MVP, or or is there something else that you'd point to to say, this is really the the main difference between what you described in 1.0 and and still remains in 2.0 and the 2.0 model? I think the 1.0 model was very well understood. It did require that alignment with a CFO, a CIO, and the procurement executive at an agency. When we announced the payment flexibility, it was a rush for many agencies to submit, thinking that there wouldn't be the rigor that this was just such an enormous amount of money that we would just be fluidly handing out this money. And we really felt such an enormous sense of responsibility to be good stewards. These are taxpayer dollars. And, you know, that, that is what the Hill, we, we were charged with this effort under COVID-19 and solar winds making sure that we were remediating and investing the American Rescue Plan money appropriately based on how it was um, uh, uh, provided to us. But um, I think that the teams did not necessarily always coordinate internally. We had, you know, several agencies that submitted component submissions that didn't go through a process with their CIO. We'd call the CIO to ask and they didn't know anything about the proposal. So there was a lot of enthusiasm from agencies and from programs in agencies um, that didn't have that same upfront rigor that a a prior TMF proposal went through. And and I can just add just one thing is, you know, I think we are also trying to follow our own guidance and take an iterative, agile, kind of continuous improvement approach to the TMF. So we're continuously learning from engaging with agencies, the new proposals that we read, and and the new investments that we make. So I I would say this unprecedented kind of influx of proposals really taught us a lot more about what agencies are seeking to do, which has then informed our criteria, our guidance, and all of that. And, And I would just say also that we really do have this emphasis on not just, I think in some ways, the older proposals may have focused on the technology modernization itself. So saying, you know, we're going to take the system from the old one to the new one. But I think now what we're really thinking and, and really asking agencies to show is what is that end user impact, right? So it's not just about the technical system improving, it's what does that achieve? What is the, how does the public's experience with government meaningfully improve, um, as is highlighted in, you know, the, the customer experience executive order and a lot of recent priorities that have come from the administration, like that's something we are especially excited to think about and look about, look at in new investments. And at the same time, Raylene, I know your office is trying to increase the number of FTEs or people, as we say in government talk. Uh, how many people have you added and how many people ho- are you hoping to add? How, how big is your staff? Yeah, the team has grown from, you know, a handful of folks to over, um, uh, over 15 now, and we're actually continuing to grow. Um, the main thing is we've brought a lot of new expertise into the team. So we have 
you know, people with deep experience in, in building technical systems and user research and design. Um, and we're continuing to grow and, and building expertise in areas like cybersecurity um, expertise and, and as well. And I know that's important because as you get more complicated and complex proposals, it's nice to have those people on board. On that note, let's take a quick break. We can continue our conversation when we come back. My guests today are Claire Monterana, the Federal Chief Information Officer, and Raylene Young, the Executive Director of GSA's Technology Modernization Fund Program Management Office. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Claire Monterana, the Federal Chief Information Officer, and Raylene Young, the Executive Director of GSA's Technology Modernization Fund Program Management Office. One of the big challenges that OMB has always had, and I go back, you know, to the late 90s on this, so unfortunately I've been around that long, is the communication with the Hill and, and explaining the impact. And first it was the e-government fund in the early 2000s, and now it's the TMF, about what the impact is and, and why it's crucial for support to continue from, from lawmakers. Walk me through a little bit about what you're doing to, to ensure you are communicating, you're having regular discussions. How are you educating members of Congress beyond some of the folks who do get it, like Jerry Conley? It's a great question. We take um, transparency and accountability for TMF funding really seriously. And so we put a process in place that we uh, um, announce in advance of making the investment award. We do stop at the Hill and make sure that our stakeholder partners there are aware of the investment understand the thesis. We do a lot of work prior to going to the Hill to make sure working inside OMB to make sure we don't, we aren't making duplicate investments and, and are really rigorous in that process because we want to make sure that the TMF funding is a partnership between Congress and the executive branch. And it is our responsibility to make sure that we are transparent, accountable. And then we also go up and do briefings to make sure that we're able to discuss some of the really keen insights that we're gaining because of having this purview of these 130 submissions it, in these four category areas, it gives us a really good indication of what some of the demand is, what that pent-up demand is across agencies, and then making sure that we are able to think about that as we're going through our normal budgeting and appropriations process. And uh, Raylene, I want to ask you the same question about the Hill, but the communication with agencies how are you working with them more broadly to make sure they're sending in proposals that are higher quality or at least the highest of quality as possible? Going back to that spirit of continuous improvement, our goal is that with every interaction that we have with an agency, we are helping to kind of improve our understanding of what they're trying to accomplish and help them improve um, future submissions to the TMF. So it's kind of a continuous collaboration with agencies that we are embarking on. Right. Very nice. I could talk about TMF longer, but uh, Claire, I want to shift gears on you a little bit and talk about the fact that OMB did also lay out these five life experiences recently to improve how agencies deliver citizens. Real quick, maybe give me the high level of what those five life experiences are, and then we can talk more about what your hope is around them. This was a real collaborative effort between the president's senior team, the president's management council, and my OMB counterparts at the U.S. Digital Service, the performance and personnel management team, and of course, our colleagues at GSA. So the five life experiences are approaching retirement, recovering from a disaster, navigating transition from active duty to civilian life, birth and early childhood for low-income mothers and children, and facing a financial shock 
or becoming newly eligible for critical support programs that we have in government. The best thing about these is we designed these life experiences based on working with these agencies. Some of them have started this journey previously, but we were really focused on, you know, doing the most good for the most people in the most need. And I think these life experiences were chosen by the President's Management Council um, because they involve our customers having to deal with these multiple agencies. So um, making sure that we work closely with the agencies involved, that these projects were already working to be in having them in progress actually helped us refine the five that we chose. And the people closest to the work actually elevated these ideas to us because they knew what was possible. And we were just really connecting the leadership teams to ensure that agency teams have the support and air cover that they need to be successful. Claire, one thing occurs to me from where you sit in the CIO's chair, how do you support these customer journeys, these life experiences? What's the technology angle, if you will? One of the exciting things about this, the life experiences and the whole customer experience executive order, is it reflects some of the work that we're doing in the office of the federal CIO, is our team is a policy team, and they're extraordinary, capable individuals working across the federal enterprise on the policies and guidance needed for agencies to do their work. But one of the great things that I have learned in my time in government is To write great policy, you actually have to have a handle on implementation and understand what the second and third order consequences might be based on the policy that you're writing. And so one of the things that we've been very deliberate in this customer experience executive order um, is making sure that we're bringing agencies with us. They were at the table to begin with. Um, We work closely with them. These were projects they were championing for us to identify. And I think we're going to have a great amount of success across agencies in these life experiences because it is they we, they are supporting the mission that these agencies are so passionate about. Part of me would ask you: So, are we expecting new policy coming out? But it sounds like it's more about implementation than policy. You're not one to sign off a ton of new policies. I've noticed that in, in the year plus you've been in in your position. So, what should we expect to come from? What, what are the next steps? I should ask. We're starting out with journey maps, the moments that matter, the intersection points between agencies. We're then going to work on sharing data to help people navigate between those agencies. So we are working on an OFCIO data memo to support this work. And then, uh, you know, fundamentally, people shouldn't need to know the name of an agency to figure out how to get the service that they need. Right. It is that simple. So we are really making sure that we are focused on the user enabling support for these agencies so that they can do the work that matters most to them. Claire, I really appreciate the fact earlier in our conversation, you talked about the five different life experiences and, and, and how they kind of fit together. For a lot of folks, though, they may say, OK, well, where do I fit in there or how does it impact me? Is there an example you all are using or sharing with with the broader community to say, hey, this is what we're talking about more specifically? A great example of one of these life experiences navigating from active duty in the military to civilian life. Right. There's a clear journey that a person goes on. 
So for example, when military service members are doing that transition, the VA invites them into a one-day class in an experience called the a TAP, the Transition Assistance Program. So observing that, mapping that, doing the journey map of what are the assets that a a member of the military needs to do that seamless transition. Don't forget your DD-14, DD-214, right? Very basic things. We can actually see the journey. We can hit the moments that matter for that individual. And we can actually design a digital service that supports that activity. So that's one example of a life experience that we think is going to have a great impact. You almost answered my question, which is that the last piece you said was design a digital service to support that. In many ways, I know the end goal is never technology, but to support whatever the life journey is, a lot of times the technology will be behind it. Is that where your office also will play another big role? Not just that data memo you mentioned, which I could ask you all kinds of questions about, but the fact is like, okay, is the resources there? Is the technology there? Is the infrastructure there to support whatever that journey is from a digital perspective? Yeah, it, it's both a digital perspective, but it's an omni-channel experience, candidly. We can optimize the digital experience. That's what we do for a living. And, and I'd say that there's great teams in government that are doing this every day and that are capable of delivering these life experiences. But we also do recognize not everyone has a mobile phone. Not everyone, uh, you know, is banked and is able to utilize some of these modern services. So we also do think about how we can meet someone where they are, make sure that they have a seamless experience, and then use digital to really optimize the experience for people who are fluent in digital, um, who want to be able to do something remotely. Um, We feel like there's a huge opportunity um, that I have seen uh, really express itself with data across many government programs. And in fact, I just saw your friends at GSA TTS just put out an RFI of sorts around equity in, in identity proofing. So exactly what you're talking about there. I really appreciate the conversation. I know we could talk longer, but unfortunately, we're out of time. So let me thank my guests. Claire Monterana is the Federal Chief Information Officer. Claire, great to catch up again. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, Jason. I really enjoyed it. And Ray Lean Young is the Executive Director of GSA's Technology Modernization Fund Program Management Office. Ray Lean, thanks as well for taking the time. Thanks for the great discussion. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to shift gears and talk about federal enterprise risk management. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. For the next two segments of the show, we're going to switch gears and talk about enterprise risk management. My guest today is Daniela Daskowska the president of the Association for Federal Enterprise Risk Management. We're here to talk about a new practice guide that a firm put out. And this is interesting because this really lays out in several, about four practice areas, how agencies can really get more momentum behind the areas of risk management. So let's just start with that new practice guide. What are some of the top level goals? Why'd you put it out? And and what's really the, the broader goal of a firm to issue it to federal risk managers? The reason why we call it the federal ERM areas of practice guidance is because it was really at the beginning, it was semantics. We began by calling it a standard and received a little bit of a pushback from our membership and from ultimate users. People were hesitant to to receive it as a standard because that would imply that it could be used as a tool 
to audit the agencies and to assess the ERM program maturity based on that document. That was not an intent. The intent was to really enhance any existing guidance on ERM, as I mentioned before, and to serve as a practical tool. And therefore, that's what we called it, ERM areas of practice guidance. It's a mouthful, but uh, this is sort of a workaround that we found to make sure that people uh, understand the spirit of it in, in the right way. I think that's smart. I think you're right. People hear standards and all of a sudden it's compliance and, and there's a whole, all these kind of things that come with it, this baggage of, of standards. And, and I think standards are really important, but there's a time and a place and, and maybe it's not quite the time and a place for ERM standards, at least through this type of approach. Let's talk about the practice areas. There's four of them you outlined. Let's just give a high-level idea of what they are and some of the areas that, that you can focus through and, and, and why they're important to the broader community. There are many more areas that we intend to cover, but because, again, we're we are a volunteer organization and it was all done by volunteers, we couldn't really put our arms around as many as we would like to. So the first phase of the release covered four areas. It's the governance of ERM program, ERM maturity model and maturity assessment. Essentially, how do what does that maturity continue and how do you assess where a program is at? We also chose to cover risk appetite statement and what it means, as well as establishing the context. And the way we picked those four uh, to, to be a part of the first phase uh, of the release of the practice of guidance is because we felt that those four are in particular good examples of of the areas where the ERM program would be significantly different for public versus private sector. And that was our intent to support public ERM programs and and, uh, leaders of those programs. And so that was one of the main criteria why those four ended up being candidates for, for the first release. I want to urge practitioners and people who are interested in this topic to really pick up the document. It's only 21 pages. It's not a very heavy read. And that was intentional. We wanted to be very practical and to the point. But I, what I do want to address is that each area, um, there is a very structured way of how we've approached it. We define what an area is. We describe, for example, if we talk about enterprise risk governance, our first area of focus, we describe what it is. And uh, we, we intentionally used the description as it applies to federal government. We also define what we believe as a firm, the main principles and attributes of ERM governance or any other area. So the structure is a description. Uh, what are the principles and attributes? And then we dive into each. And for for each of the principles and attributes, we try to give very practical examples of what it means and what it looks like, right? What good looks like. So if, for example, we talk about uh, ERM enterprise risk governance, one of the attributes is understanding what constitutes organizational value. So we would describe what an organization organizational value is. We would explain why it is important. 
And then we would give examples of how agency might achieve that attribute of uh, organizational value. So just to give you an example for an attribute of understanding what constitutes organizational value, some of the examples that we're giving would be establishing hierarchical decision-making processes that align risk decision-making vertically and horizontally across the organization. That's one example. Another one was to discuss with key external stakeholders their interests and needs. Third one is promptly communicate changes in the direction of the agencies to stakeholders. Maybe to your listeners, taken sort of out of the context, it's kind of hard to make connections. But really, trust me, if if you read through the document, it all makes sense, right? And and the point I want to make is that uh, the structure that we follow, the description, the principle, the attributes, the examples, it's really, we felt that it's a natural way. All of the people who participated in building this first release document, they're all practitioners. They've uh, designed, implemented, and sustained ERM programs. And so we followed the structure in putting together the document to, to be able to not only define what a certain area is, but also give very practical examples. Finally, in, in those areas where it was applicable, we also gave special consideration for small agencies because the implementation and the adaptation of this document really would very much depend on the mission of the agency, on the size of the agency, on how the ERM program is structured, whether it's led by one individual, for example, a chief risk officer, or is led by the board. All of those considerations come into play. And one of the considerations is whether it's a large agency or a small agency. So to, to the extent that we had that knowledge and it was applicable to, for a certain area, we made special notice of how uh, a small agency may or may not benefit from some of the things that were described in the document. Danielle, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation. My guest today is Danielle Daskowska, the president of the Association for Federal Enterprise Risk Management. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Daniela Daskowska, the president of the Association for Federal Enterprise Risk Management. Today, we're talking about the firm's new ERM practice guide. One of the things when you talk about the small agencies and the call-outs there, not all of them have the resources to get into enterprise risk management. Are there pieces and parts? Or are there things that they can do to kind of apply some of the practice area guide or, or a piece of it to, to really continue to kind of move down the, the maturity model path? Yes, yes, absolutely. The beauty of maturity in an ARM program is that it's fairly flexible. But having said that, there are some fundamental things that you need to have in place for the program to exist and to, to grow and to flourish eventually. So governance is one of those things. You do need to understand what, how the program is going to be governed, who has authority and responsibility to make risk-related decisions, what is that hierarchy, you know, grass from top down and bottom up. 
and you know how does the information flow and who reports on existing risks who has responsibility for identifying those and who has the responsibility for defining for for example the risk appetite statement so it's very flexible and you can, as a practitioner, again, knowing the environment that you're in and the appetite for this type of program and the type of top level support that you have, you can pick and choose on what is important to you. But but again, to emphasize, I think governance is very important for the for the program to take root. I think also defining the risk management processes. How do you identify risks? How do you assess and manage them? Understanding your contacts, it's one of the modules, right? Uh, in order to identify risks, you need to understand what is the universe in which you exist, right? What are some of the external events as well as internal processes that create risks and opportunities and you need to understand and establish that context and there are a couple of others but um and they're discussed in the in the uh, areas of practice but again the four that were selected those you know foundational bricks uh, except for probably a risk appetite you sometimes you know we it's absolutely important to define one but i think that an agency needs to be at a certain level of maturity to be able to do that but we still felt it's important to include because for reason number 1 is because it is very different for federal agencies versus uh, private companies and organizations. And that was one of the criteria for making it into the guidance. And also because it's important to begin to think about it as you build your uh, structure, as you build your program, whether or not you're astute enough and mature enough to actually spell it out. I think as you're making your trade-offs and allocating resources, which risks to address and how do you prioritize your risks, it's important to have at least a notional understanding of what your appetite is. Because obviously resources are limited and you can't address every risk on your risk inventory. I think that's really helpful as you went through it to, to break down kind of what folks should keep in mind and how these are foundational pieces. Because the other side of the coin here is not everyone who's a risk manager, right, who considers themselves a risk manager, you know, this is helpful for them too. They they don't need to be in the ERM office. They don't need to be somebody who says, oh, I manage risk for my program. At least consciously, they don't need to say that. I think we all have to manage the risks, whether we do it consciously or subconsciously or, or as part of our daily work. So what can kind of the Layman, right? That the people who understand why risk is important, but I, I don't manage risk every day, take from this. How, how's this helpful for folks like me? Probably a lame answer, but <laughs> to be a good employee and to be a well-rounded employee of, of an agency, it would be nice if everybody would take a quick read through it. But you mentioned it, and I was going to say that it was a perfect setup to, to a phrase that we always use, that everybody is a risk manager. Right. Whether or not you have the title, it's incumbent upon us if we are loyal and, and support the mission of our organizations is to be on the lookout for risks and opportunities. Right. And uh, why it's important is because it provides us ammunition to know when something is not right, 
and what are the mechanisms for escalating and elevating, and that most importantly, the element of risk culture. You know, if I read through this document, and I know that my organization is in line with the main principles of this guidance, I feel empowered to speak up if I see that a risk is about to materialize. And I know that we pay attention as an organization. So, like I said, in addition to just being a well-rounded person and understand that this is a discipline that exists and and here are the uh, examples of how you can implement some of the areas of practice related to ERM, it also empowers you to and gives you tools on how you need to manage risk and what are the important elements of of doing that uh, with very specific examples. And also, if you want to accelerate in your career, I think having ability to articulate in terms of, you know, uh, risk management and enterprise risk management and how it integrates with internal controls and how it ultimately serves to allowing an organization to more effectively and efficiently achieve its mission and strategic objectives that's again one of the ultimate goals of what we're doing right by identifying and managing risks and opportunities early on we are allowing our organizations to meet their mission and strategic objectives so for a lay person who is not you know professionally a risk manager or, or ERM a practitioner That's the reason, because I want my organization to succeed. We've talked a lot about the practice guide. As I said, we'll link to it on federalnewsnetwork.com, make it easy to find as well. Uh, But there's more going on at a firm than just this practice guide. And what are some of the other goals or or priorities for a firm as you head into further into 2022? As a president, I have one year. That's the way a firm governance is structured. It's very little time to to be able to really make an impact, but, but I'm trying and hoping that as every past president, there will be some impact that I can make with the organization. My three primary goals is to remain relevant in terms of the content that we put out, in terms of the networking opportunities that we have. Those of you uh, who know about the firm, uh, you will recognize that one of our marquee events is a firm summit that happens in September, uh, October of each year. So making sure that during the summit, the topics that are being discussed, the plenary speakers are really relevant to what's happening uh, with your agencies in our context, right, in our environment. So that's goal number one, to remain relevant. Goal number two is to make sure that uh, we, we have many alliances and partnership as a firm. We work very closely with AGA, we work with RIMS, we work with uh, George Washington University and, and a number of other um, organizations. But because we're a volunteer organization, it takes a toll on our volunteers. And so uh, I've asked the board to make sure that we really understand who we want to partner with this year. And maybe it's one or two organizations, but it's impactful. And goal number three that underlines the other two is to refresh, strengthen our volunteer base. And I am Super excited. That's one area where we were able to make a huge dent in the first few months of this year. Danielle, I really appreciate this time, your time today. It was, it was, I learned so much, and uh, we will, again, help you get the word out. So let me thank my guest, 
Daniela Daskowska is the president of the Association for Federal Enterprise Risk Managers. Daniela, thank you so much for taking the time. Jason, thank you so much for giving me the time and uh, ability to reach to your audience. And please come and join us at the firm. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.